We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1985's To Live and Die in L.A., directed by William Friedkin and written by Friedkin and Gerald Petovich. Hi, my name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me, of course, is Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? What's up, Simon? Yo. I was just about to say, also Simon Howell, the chooser of this week's film. You're goddamn right. I'm the chooser of this film. So, Simon, why? tell us why you decided to choose a great movie that nobody can watch. <laughs> Um, I wanted to continue our sort of accidental recent series of movies about cops and the criminals they're obsessed with chasing and who they may or may not be similar to. Um, this kind of goes with drug war and, uh, hard boiled and some other stuff we've been talking about. Uh, it's also kind of in that noir genre interzone, a noir action film crime picture interzone that I love so much. And it's a William Friedkin movie, and I, I, I think Friedkin is a is a master, sort of a low key master who's made a lot of movies I really like, and this is one of them. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's it's up there. I I love this movie. He's made some awesome movies. There's no question. He's made a few like duds as well, but the guy swings for the fences. I feel like. Uh, before we launch into it, let's hear a clip from To Live and Die in L.A.
All right, that was a clip from William Friedkin's To Live and Die, and Die in L.A. Uh, both of those things do occur in this movie. They um, sure do. <laughs> all right, so I had never seen this thing before. And it turns out it's, it's really hard to see. <laughs> you cannot just go to Amazon Prime and rent this. You can't find, at least not here anyway. Rick, you said that there was a bootleg copy on YouTube, but here it's blocked, um, that link that you gave me. Uh, it was really hard to see this movie. I guess the DVD is available, but this is a great movie. You're telling me that you got blocked on YouTube? I sure did. So the movie is on YouTube. It used to be on streaming platforms, and it was removed not long ago. And do we know why it was removed? Because it's kind of weird that a movie from a major film director is just not available anywhere. I mean, William Peterson now, he I mean, he's probably one of the richest actors alive, but that's really just because of, you know, CSI, uh, which he is, I, I gather, returning to soon. Um, but people like I don't know. I just I, I don't even know if people think of him as a film actor at all. I know I've actually never really watched CSI, so I know him from Michael Mann movies. He was in Manhunter. He had a small yes. part in Thief. You wouldn't recognize him. So three movies back to back, three masterpieces back to back. Pretty impressive way to start your career. Yeah, and this movie also has Willem. De- it's like it's got nobody. Willem Dafoe, John Turturro, and the good great Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell might have even been the most famous person in the cast at the time, to be honest. He uh, might have been. Ma- Quantum Leap was huge. Yeah. Anyway, maybe we should zoom out a bit and uh, say a little bit about what this movie is about uh, and why people should uh, honestly pirate it. Just go to the fucking Pirate Bay. You I know. Pirate I know. it. Buy the DVD. Buy the Blu-ray. Oh, if, yeah. If, if, if you can get the DVD or the Blu-ray, absolutely. I uh, have the I, DVD. Uh, yeah, it's not impossible to find. If you go through like uh, your local Salvation Army or Value Village or whatever, you'll probably find a copy. It's not that hard to find. And it's not too expensive if you buy the DVD on Prime. No. But it isn't on streaming services right now, which is a pain in the ass. However, uh, it is it, on YouTube again. It is. It is on YouTube. And, and I just want to point out that the version on YouTube it's really is good quality. better quality than my actual DVD. So this is a uh, this is based on a. I actually I, I, w- I want to start off by saying one of my I think maybe secretly my favorite thing about this movie is that it's not about cops exactly it's about secret service agents and something uh, Patrick you're the American here so you're going to need to confirm what I think I know about this the okay. secret service has two jobs right and those two jobs are a protect the president and the vice president of the United States of America and b uh, hunt down counterfeiters. That's literally That's true, correct. right? That's correct. That is absolutely <laughs> correct. So, like, they, they can work with the Department of Treasury in this, but they their one of their jobs is specifically to hunt down counterfeiters. That is correct. I yeah, and like, if you want to look at the, I'm not going to go over the history of the Secret Service, but I I just wanted to note that because it's I was confused the entire movie about who these people were and why they were like doing what I thought was the FBI's job, um, but also the fact that the 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 film is based on a book by, and it's co-written by this guy, Gerald Pedevic, who is himself a former Secret Service agent. And I hope this movie is 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 like has documentary like realism about what it is that Secret Service members get up to all day, because if it's true, they're the most <laughs> and, corrupt agency on the face of the earth. And how big of adrenaline junkies they are, and just like. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, there's probably parts of this film that, I and mean, we can get into that later, as, as like where they act really dumb <laughs> and unprofessional, which ha- tends to happen in movies. But I think as far as the job goes, the actual parts of that that 
facet of the Secret Service's job. It it strikes a, a note as being pretty true. You hear about stuff every now and again when counterfeiters get caught. Um, and you hear about the stakeouts that they've done and the places that they've raided. So it sounds, look, I'm not an expert, obviously. But sure you aren't. It sure rings true. Um, and I don't know, well, like, well, we could just explain the plot really quick. There's about a Secret Service agents who are on the trail of a badass counterfeiter played by Willem Dafoe who has murdered the partner of one of the guys. And so he who was did. just about to retire. That's right. He was two days, man. He was short. And uh, yeah, so this guy is basically on a revenge mission. He's willing to do whatever it takes, including crossing the line. I mean, there's obviously parallels here to um, the French Connection, like For pretty sure. clearly. Uh, I, I think this is just Freak, Freakin's sequel to the French Connection. Pretty well, much. the 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 two cops. Do you call do you call them cops? The two uh, no, they're, they're, secret, the agents. They're, they're agents. They're, they're, they're closer to feds agents. than cops, really. Yes, okay, they so are feds. Yeah. The two I mean, secret agents, they actually have to break the law in order to get $50,000 uh, in order to get in with the criminal mastermind played by Willem Dafoe. It's 30000 I think. Well, yeah, but they they need 30000 but they go for 50000 And it turns out that the guy that they rob is actually an undercover FBI agent. And they, well, they don't kill him, but he gets killed in the process. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. That's enough plot. Well, we could definitely talk about, like, um, as far as that, the basic premise, the setup, couple yeah, of cops absolutely. looking looking to uncover some big kind of thing, a little bit of revenge going on. Again, this is very Popeye Doyle-ish. Um, like, badass, badass secret, they're not cops, badass secret secret agents, too. Like, one of them is just an adrenaline junkie. He likes to go bungee jumping, base jumping. Uh, he jumps off bridges for fun. He likes to get his, his fix that way. Um He's sleazy. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that really distinguishes this movie from some other movies of the sort is that you start off thinking it's going to be like kind of a, a rah-rah, you know, cool cops hunting down the bad guys who are like really, really bad. Um, but then it turns out actually that the bad guy is pretty cool and the and the main cop is just an absolute pig. Um, I mean, William Peterson is is a sl- is a slime ball in this movie. Yeah, he exploits uh, he exploits informants. Uh, basically, like holds them under lock and key, almost with threats, uh, keep them close to him. He does a lot of things. He crosses the line in a lot of ways. The other agent, his his new partner after his old partner was killed, his new partner definitely is supposed to be sort of the moral center of the movie. That guy has real problem uh, with with some of these things. He seems like he's more on the up and up, or at least always has been to that point. Uh, but of course, he's taken on a journey where he's forced to make decisions as well. Um, as far as Willem Dafoe's character, there's no question, I think, that he's cool, but he's definitely not what you'd call a good guy, right? Oh, he no, has... like, he's definitely not moral, but he, I mean, they even, it's like... like the honor amongst thieves kind of thing. Like, he has a code. I mean, it's he's... more than that. I would say also there's, he makes a point of having Willem Dafoe be, like, pre like, uh, like it seems like a pretty decent boyfriend and partner. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, William Peterson is is, like essentially like holding his his uh his snitch like as you as you said under lock and key and essentially like you know part partly sexual servitude or whatever so it's oh, like yeah. he like there's a clear demarcation like it's not that Willem Dafoe is the protagonist or anything to my mind it's clearly Peterson at least for a while but every time you're you, you go over to Willem Dafoe's side it's like wow this guy just seems so much more chill and cool than William Peterson <laughs> I think that's what makes this movie and a lot of Freakin's movies so great is because there is no real villain or bad guy. They're so similar yet not the same. And 
it doesn't fall into, I don't know if I should use the word cliche, but the typical good guy chasing bad guy, neo-noir crime film. You know what I mean? These characters are not so clearly drawn along black and white lines. Like Defoe is clearly a bad guy because, I mean, we do see him kill the partner, I think like 15, 20 minutes into the movie. The guy who he kills in cold blood is maybe the nicest, most likable character in the film also, right? So we're we're meant to hate and despise this character. We like him because Willem Dafoe is so slick and cool in the role. And he's so hypnotic. And, and I don't know if I would use the word charismatic, but there's something intriguing and fascinating about his performance and his character. But the characters are so similar that at times... You're not really clear who the good guy or the bad guy is. Like if you're tuning into the film, like if you're if you're switching channels and you happen to stumble upon this film and you're like halfway through the film, you might be confused. You might actually think that Chance is actually the bad guy and Rick Masters is maybe yeah. the protagonist. Well, he's well, certainly a bad guy. There's no question about for that. For sure. Without giving anything away, I will say this. Having never seen this movie before, my response at the end was that I was, uh, uh, inside I was kind of cheering. I had like a moment of uplift. <laughs> and I think I, you know the moment I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know the moment you're talking about. I, I actually laughed out loud and I was kind of happy that it happened. So right, and that, that's why, like, when I was discussing the plot earlier, like, to me, that wasn't really like a, a big reveal or uh, a spoiler, like, because there's so many things that happens in this film, which we're not going to talk about now, which I think would be big spoilers, and big, huge plot twists and things that you won't see coming from a mile away, especially for the time, because this movie was released 85, 85. 85. So it was made in 84. And like, I... I think the thing about this film, too, and you might disagree, but I think what also makes it great, and I'm, I'm not as big on the movie as you are, Simon. I do think it's a great movie. I just don't think it's one of his best. Mm-hmm. But I do think it has a simple plot, but complex characters. Yeah. And I think in the director's commentary, William Friedkin explains that the entire film is about counterfeit relationships, not just counterfeit money. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a metaphor for a lot of what he saw working in los angeles and so the movie is obsessed with the idea of fakes and Mm -hmm. everything about it feels fake the relationships feel fake the emotions feel fake their jobs feel fake or i mean everything about it. it it just so happens to also take place in la which i think is a very superficial um city i mean i've been there and i don't really like los angeles to be honest but but Rick Masters, played by Willem Dafoe, he's the villain, but he's also an artist. And he's an artist who, yes, he makes counterfeit money to support his real art. And then he makes these beautiful paintings, which apparently are worth a lot of money. But then he burns his paintings, his real art. So he makes counterfeit money to support his real passion, which is painting, of which he burns because he's never happy with his paintings because he's a perfectionist. So he creates to destroy his own art. He's got such a passion for for painting that he burns his paintings. That This is another set of ways, by the way, in which Willem Dafoe is seen as more sensitive and cooler than all the other characters. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he's sensitive or not. I, I will say this, like, it, it's easy to sort of read into some of his relationship until the end. In which case, then you start to have to go back and be like, you have to reconsider mm-hmm. what you thought about his relationship. Because one of those people engaged in that relationship does not necessarily seem to be uh, 
you know, horrified when it's over. <laughs> there's a there's another thing that's really important to establish about this movie that doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. And this movie came out smack dab in the middle of the 80s. And holy shit, is this one of the most 80s movies we've done? Uh, I the, mean... The soundtrack alone. The Wang Chung songs, the uh, intensely neon green with the huge blocky letters opening credits mm. Ugh, iconic the title cards are so 80s for sure i do not like the score for the movie but i love the soundtrack the the soundtrack is killer like and some people would say it dates the movie but i don't think so because the movie does take place in 1985 so to me it doesn't really date the movie because it's a movie that takes place in the 80s the wang chung soundtrack not only fits the movie but it brings it to life the, the music itself became even bigger on the on the music scene than the actual movie did because the movie was sort of like I would I mean I wouldn't call it a flop but it didn't exactly do gangbusters at the box office and you can't even watch a damn movie now in 2021 because it's not available no, to watch anywhere. I, I mean the movie was a success uh, probably only because uh, Freakin made this thing for a paltry what like eight million dollars. Six. That's six. Six million, which is and nothing. Because nothing he only had six million dollars, he called it a blessing because he couldn't actually hire big actors, and so therefore he found this incredible cast. And we mentioned Willem Dafoe. We mentioned William Peterson, who was in Manhunter. He was in Thief. He's now in CSI. But there's also a very young John Turturro, who at the time was a nobody. Well, I won't say nobody. I hate using the word nobody. He was an unknown actor or lesser known actor. He wasn't as iconic as he is now. No, but let me tell you, if you needed someone between, I mean, look, John Turturro can do a lot of things, but if you needed someone to play a nasty little bastard between the era of like 1985 to 1994, John Turturro played a really good mean little bastard. <laughs> I still think my favorite actor in this film is Steve James, and he often goes overlooked and no one really speaks of him because there's so many great actors and performers and performances in this film but i think steve james is an unsung hero an unsung gem he's so good in this movie i love him wait which one is steve james he's jeff oh yeah yeah uh i'm still gonna go back to dean stockwell on this one. <laughs> oh, he's he's, he's fantastic too. i actually really like his sort of sleazy lawyer i thought that that was he was playing both sides perfectly I, I of all the people that were playing the game i felt like he played the game the best now, he's not a huge character but he's He's recurring. Dean Stockwell is one of like six supporting characters in this movie who kind of seem like they're the protagonists of their own movie that you just don't get to see. Yes. Like, especially Dean Stockwell, he's kind of like this Saul Goodman-esque figure who's like a criminal lawyer and a criminal lawyer, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. And you only get a little bit of him, but especially that scene when he subtly intimates like his price for being involved in a case in like an informal capacity. Uh, and oh, it's, the, he's... it's the exact amount, I don't think, he... uh, coincidentally, that yes. the, the FBI and, uh, is hearing. And shout out, by the way, to uh, Robert Downey Sr., also kicking around the supporting cast for a few lines. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I think the important thing about Stockwell's character is that he's the bridge. He's kind of the bridge between the criminal underworld and law, yeah. which all of these characters are, uh, have started to, to go gray in. Uh, they started to blur that line. And there's definitely a lot of mirroring going on in this. You you talked about it a little bit, but not just between Secret Service agent and counterfeiter, but just between like the way the the, the women's jobs, for instance, their girlfriends. Uh, one of them works at a strip club and the other one is it, is it like where exotic dancers work and the other one is a dancer in like some sort of exotic stage 
performance art thing. Mm -hmm. There's Uh, always a duality between his characters in his movies, Friedkin. And it shows class versus kind of like sleaze. And it's, it's telling you something about the people that they're, those women are with. It tells you something about William Defoe and tells you something about um, Wayne Peterson. For, for every group of characters, there's a yin and there's a yang. But yeah, there's, there's always a line between right and wrong, good and evil, justice and corruption. And again, that goes back to the two main characters themselves, because who is the real villain and hero in this film? I don't think there really is any heroes, really. Uh, I, I think that uh, Vukovic is, could be seen as almost the hero towards the end. Now, he, Except he for makes, the ending. Yes, he has to yes. make a decision. But that's a tragic decision, right, in a way? It, it, it's mm. Not everything always turns out good. But, <laughs> but We'll get to I the mean, ending you, after the break. I think it's supposed to be seen as a somewhat. Like, the, this whole thing is just going to continue on, right? Yeah, like clearly. For the for the woman that that he's talking to, she knows that she's not out of it. Like this is this is never going to end, and it's unfortunate, right? Until I, we abolish the Secret it. Service forever, which I can I must assume is the message of this film. <laughs> well, I mean, the Secret Service. It's funny because the, most people think of the Secret Service and they think of them protecting the President of the United States, which they're doing at the very beginning of the movie. And you, Rick, you said it, it dates the movie. Like that isn't the music doesn't. I'm sorry, you said the movie isn't dated. The the, the soundtrack, the score. Right. I don't like. But, this is what I want to like. This movie does actually take place in 1985 because they have Ronald Reagan speaking. They're protecting yes. Ronald yes. Reagan at the time. So it's not like we don't actually know. see Ronald Reagan, but we hear he's him though. spoken he, about. Yeah. And he's giving a speech. We hear him. Yeah. So they're at the hotel and Reagan is speaking at the hotel and they're talking about the big man going to come play poker with them and all that kind of stuff as soon yeah. as he's done with his speech. And uh, then there's a, that, that cool opening sequence where you think that this is going to be a movie about Secret Service agents protecting the president because that's what they do in the beginning of the movie. And it's so not about that <laughs> at all. I have a question. I'm sure we're going to talk about this scene after the break. But yeah. my question is, if this movie didn't have the iconic six to eight minute car chase, would people talk about it as much as they do nowadays? I I think that they would not, but only because it is the source of like 80% of the action in this movie. Like without it, it's almost not an action film. Well, I think it's because the sorcerer, the film he directed prior, although we all think, at least I hope we think it's a masterpiece nowadays in 2021 in retrospect, but it was a box office flop. Nobody liked it. Nobody saw it. And so if this movie was released and everyone was talking about the car chase because he made the French connection and everyone was raving about the car chase. So anyone who actually went to go see the movie went to go see the went to go see the movie because of the car chase, because nobody knew who any of these actors were. That's true. I mean, uh, and uh, the, the, the thing that's funny about the car chase, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail at some point, is that it's the only portion of the film as far as i know that wasn't shot by legendary dp robbie muller no you would know from basically every vim vendors film of that era and probably some other stuff that i'm forgetting about um what i find this is another thing that i just wanted to point out as being so interesting and iconic about this movie is that interspersed are these really artful shots every once in a while especially of interiors um and uh and of like shadows and wide open spaces that are just very Robbie Mueller and uh for a and when that happens you kind of get transported every once in a while to like a European art film or like a Paul Schrader film and maybe it's the Willem Dafoe thing 
but at, at times it felt like in some of Willem Dafoe's scenes, like it was a weird prequel to the Paul Schrader movie Light Sleeper. If anyone's seen that one, no, um, I haven't. With, I have not uh, either. Defoe as an insomniac coke dealer. I think he's insomniac. Anyway, he's always up at night. Uh, good movie. Good uh, kind of a kind of a companion piece to like first reform that kind of thing. Uh, anyway, I, I all a long way to say it's just cool that there's these art house Euro art house flourishes in some of the cinematography and staging. Oh yeah, for sure. But but like it was a second unit director who took over to shoot the car chase, which to be fair was the last six weeks of shooting. So you know he did his fair share of work. Hell yeah, only because Mahler was afraid that they would actually kill the cast or crew or something, and he just didn't want to participate in such a crazy ash car car chase sequence, which I guess we'll talk about after the break. I'm assuming, but. I just want to quickly mention that the actor, the main actor, I guess you would call him the protagonist of this film. He, I'm talking about William Peterson, who plays Richard Chance, okay? I mean, his first leading role, like he had been in movies prior, but this is his, his, his own, this is him in the lead, right? It's like, it's his movie, it's his time to shine, his time yeah. to break into the spotlight and make lots of money and be like it's a household name. Things. He, he's asked to do a bunch of things, like you said, yeah. So he jumps off a bridge, like he legit jumps off a bridge. Yeah. He drives against traffic on the LA freeway in this crazy brutal eight minute chase sequence, which again took about six weeks to film. He appears in a bunch of sex scenes, full frontal nudity. I mean, you name it, he does everything that most actors wouldn't want to do. And he actually prefers to do his own stunts. By the way, uh, not just full frontal nudity. But if we're going to get technical about this, full frontal erect nudity, that is really rare. You know, like full frontal male nudity is rare generally, but erect nudity, that's something you don't see every day, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> no, you do not. <laughs> not in a mainstream Hollywood film with no an way. actor who's trying to be like a household name, which I'm, now I guess he is. Like, I mean, oh, yeah, call? he definitely is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's or at least like he's a household face. Well, that's People like the biggest show name, on cable but... right now, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and he's PSI. also he's he's coming back to it. Right. And he did it for so many seasons. He was he's probably like making two million bucks an episode or something insane like that. So there is a scene in this film, this entire sequence in which Willem Dafoe has to actually create the fake money the counterfeit money yes i am not kidding you i was watching that scene i watched the movie twice this week i'd seen the movie in the past but like watching it this week twice the first time i watched the movie i was like man that looks so incredibly fake like what is he doing here like i don't understand the process of making this in trying to and then trying to like film this guy creating the money like why is he using this paint like how would this actually make any sense and so watching this scene and i'm thinking okay, this is not actually how they would make counterfeit money. And it turns out that, yes, this is exactly how you make counterfeit money because they actually made counterfeit money. <laughs> you know, I, I know that they I know that they claimed that some of those bills, uh, despite their, quote, best efforts, uh, made it into circulation. I kind of don't really believe that story. That, but sounds, it, but, that sounds like a little bit of a made-up legend. But I will say... The like op the, these long loving sequences, literally loving. They're they're almost like sex scenes of Willem Dafoe methodically manufacturing this wonderfully elaborate fake money. Uh, are so great, and they remind me of like the um, although that they're they're closer to the beginning, so the flavor is a bit different. But they, it reminds me of the uh, like the like the safe cracking sequence in Bobble of Flambar or something. 
I can't believe you didn't mention Michael Mann's Thief. Uh, I mean, Bob Bob LeFlambeur yeah. is a great like reference, but uh, it really really reminded me of like Thief. Like, I mean, it's not yeah. clearly like it's counter it's him trying to make counterfeit money as opposed to them trying to crack a safe. But yeah. the attention to detail and the way it's shot and the fact that it also takes place in the '80s, like I couldn't not help but think of Michael Mann. Like, to be totally honest with you, if I did not know who the director of this movie was. I might actually guess Michael Mann. It didn't, I don't know, man. It feels like a Friedkin movie to me, just because of some of those uh, touches that you were talking about earlier with the interiors and sort of the way that he, the way that he does his cinematic stuff is just a little different than Michael Mann. I'd say that the main difference between this and a Michael Mann movie is that if you think about it, Michael Mann is sort of, he's kind of a sentimentalist at the end of the day. Like his movies, aren't don't don't like they're they're cool looking and they're often quite violent but they're usually kind of soft-hearted at the end of the day even like a movie like miami vice if you really think about it um but this movie on the other hand is cold and mean and nasty and cynical and biting and black-hearted in all the ways that i like my noirish crime movies to be um this i don't know i just I, i i can't see michael mann from what from any from any film that I can think of off the top of my head, at least getting this gritty, getting this sort of uh, psychologically gritty, I guess. Michael Mann does tend to do heroes and villains. Like he 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 does like to have a, a somewhat distinct line between his good guys and bad guys. He likes to cross them over a little bit, but they are good guys and bad guys. He likes cops and robbers, um, and he likes the them to play those parts for the most part. I mean, but, but I'm referring to the way this specific scene is shot like i'm watching it right now on youtube and i'm like this to me does not feel like a friedkin sequence it feels like michael mann directed this specific sequence the thing with friedkin though is i just never know what to expect from him half the time like i feel like he's experimenting on stuff every now and again and even with his newer stuff like it's always a kind of a joy to watch one of his movies just from a visual perspective even if the movie doesn't work Uh, just because he does go for stuff Based on the making of documentary that I watched, he is experimenting because a lot of times he would have the camera roll and he would pretend like they're just doing a rehearsal take or he wouldn't even tell the the actors that the camera is rolling and he would use that footage in the film. So like there's a good chunk of the film where the the actual footage that made it to the final cut. It was them thinking that they were just rehearsing and or it was just like random shots of people just speaking the lines or walking around or just doing whatever it is that they were doing. Uh, which I, I'm sure came in handy in a way that we'll talk about in a moment, but uh, you, you can see, <laughs> let's just say there's, there's evidence of the, of that technique throughout the film. Yeah. I would say so too. The editing is, is a, uh, definitely noticeable in this and some of the performances as well. And there's a lot of athletic movement in this. I kind of, that's one reason to like William Peterson's character. If even though he is a sleazeball, there is something very physical about his performance. He is a he's a young guy and he takes action a lot of times and he does it in a very capable manner um, that is just kind of admirable. His athleticism throughout this movie is pretty pretty admirable. Um, it's fun to watch as he leaps around things and just kind of like he's a very physical presence. Um, he's a meathead in in many ways, but his physical presence is pretty cool. Um, very different from William Defoe, who is just more of a slinker. Definitely a slinker, yeah. All right, before we get any further into this, um, let's take a quick break. We'll hear another clip from To Live and Die in L.A., and we'll be back with our five questions. Oh, 
How'd that last stuff go? Hell, man, I had it sold within a week. I needed more, but you changed the phone numbers. I had people begging for some of them 20s. Had to lay low for a while. That's what I heard. Heard someone popped your mule at the airport. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. He's up in a bisbo, and I think he may try to deal his way out. Hmm. How much of a problem would that be? Ain't no big thing. But ain't nobody gonna work for free. What would it take? It'll cost you 100K in 20s, if they're as good as the last ones. 50,000 in hundreds. It's all I have on hand at the moment. Big bills ain't popular in this neighborhood, brother. It's gotta be 20s. Well, I might be able to find 50,000 or so in 20s lying around somewhere. Can I ask you something? As long as you print that shit your own self, what the hell do you care if I make 25, 50, or 100 grand? It'd be nothing but motherfucking paper to you. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what. I take 75K in 20s, and I'll personally guarantee the job. All right, that was another clip from William, Fried William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. All right, we've reached a portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. I think we're all fairly positive on this movie. We're going to start off with a positive thing no matter what, because we always do. Uh, Simon, you picked this movie. What's your favorite scene from To Live and My Die in L.A.? Scene, um, it sort of feels like cheating to say the uh, the car chase, because it's so long. It's like a multi-stage sequence. Um, so there's one stage of that sequence that to me is just like the heart of the movie and the heart of what, uh, Friedkin specifically does so well. And that's, I guess, sort of the last, um, the last portion of the, uh, of the chase where they, they think they're in the clear, but then suddenly just people keep showing up <laughs> yeah. like more cars. I was like, I was like more what the people. hell's happening? And they're just so it doesn't even seem because you don't know yet that the character that they've essentially just murdered was a federal agent, um, yeah. uh, which in some places could get you fucking executed. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and they're just, and we were talking a second ago about his uh, tendency to just kind of film people as they're, as they're, you know, working through stuff and you get the impression watching them, drive like maniacs in various parts of LA that they really are scared out of their goddamn minds. Like they look like they're on a Coke bender. Um, and it's, it's, te it's telling that William Peterson was apparently offered the role of Henry Hill in Goodfellas. Um, and I, I think it had to have been at least somewhat based on his in incredibly manic and paranoid performance in this scene. Huh? Well, cause he was actually driving the car for like, so, so I, if you watch the making of, they show how they actually, filmed the car chase sequence at times he's actually driving the car and at times they have the car rigged on onto like a, uh, a pickup truck and then they have the cameras on the pickup truck i believe it's a pickup truck and so they're filming the car which is not actually they're not actually driving the car they're pretending they're driving the car because the car is being dragged by the pickup truck right but like he does perform his own stunts and he does drive because, like, again, it took, like, six weeks for them to film this because a good portion of the car chase sequence towards the end, they're driving against traffic. And that's what makes it so incredible. Did you read Roger Ebert's review of this? I, I did, yes. Okay, because Roger Ebert wrote that... I'm going to pull this up. He wrote, 
The great chases are rarely just chases. They involve some kind of additional element, an unexpected vehicle, an unusual challenge, a strange setting. So in this case, I guess the reason why he liked the scene so much is because the unusual challenge is the fact that they're driving against traffic for real on the LA freeway. Yes. And he's, he, he said that if he wasn't pleased with the outcome of the car chase, he would scrap the entire scene and they wouldn't include it in the movie because he needed to be as good, if not better than the chase sequence in the French connection. Um, Two more things I want to mention about uh, this whole stretch of the sequence, which I mean, to, to, to my mind, the, the part of the sequence that I'm naming ends right before they get onto the uh, highway against traffic with that wonderful joke of uh, of William Peterson saying, we're going this way. And then a cut to wrong way. <laughs> which, I don't know. That was almost like a Spielberg joke or something. I just it was so broad and so unlike the rest of the movie that I couldn't not love it you know yeah I, and i think like the difference between this car chase and a lot of car chases we've seen in the past especially recently in modern cinema is forget the cgi and the computer generated graphics a lot of these car chases are made to look good in post-production because of editing not because of stunts. So that's one of the reasons why I love Tarantino's Death Proof so much, because he actually filmed a car chase. The women are actually on top of the car. You know what I mean? It's not CGI. It's not done in post-production. It's framing. It's it's camera shots. It's, it's, it's actual real-life stunts. And I have such a respect for this type of filmmaking because it's exhilarating and it's exciting to watch. It's impressive. This is one of the best car chases in the history of motion pictures. I don't think it's the best, but it's one of the best. I think one of the other things, too, that I really liked about it was, like what Ebert said in his review, those little surprises. I was not expecting more guys to suddenly show up. I, w I was wondering, what the hell is going on here? And even when they, they would sometimes be shooting at him, and sometimes they wouldn't. When they surrounded him, they actually didn't shoot him. And I thought... What the hell is going on? Why aren't they just blasting him to pieces? Well, it makes sense later on when you figure out that they're federal agents. They they were probably confused as anybody, and they thought they had these guys cornered, and they were going to arrest them. Um, but it's the accidents that happen, too. This is not a perfect... I think what, too many chases now, the drivers are incredible, right? They're incredibly skilled, which you know is bullshit. Like nobody drives this well. And so what's happening in this, though, they're hitting stuff. And there are a couple of car-on-car -car accidents. Like, William Peterson, isn't, his character is not a perfect driver. He smashes into some people. They they do a little – they make little mistakes here and there that make the scene way more interesting than the slick CG-manufactured car chases that happen now. I think a, I think another way this uh, this car chase – like, I think the, the, the main asset of this whole – like multi-part car chase sequence is the fact that you think you think that you've seen the craziest part and then it just keeps topping it like mm -hmm. early in the sequence you get that 18 wheeler going sideways which again is happening for Jack real Nicey. and yeah. and cars are going into it for real and it's just like goddamn and you think that's going to be the, the 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 climax of the sequence but you're wrong like you're wrong several times over and can we just mention that they outrun a train a speeding train before yes. they even get to the fantastic. damn freeway. They outrun a train and he needs to cross the train tracks before the train smashes into his car. 
that that to me was the best part of the car chase. Oh, that's old school, man. It's yeah, cutting amazing. in front of that cha- train, that was dangerous. <laughs> they pulled it off. <laughs> I swear to God, I know this now because of doing some research. And what I mean by research is watching the making of documentary. But I actually noticed this watching the movie this week. So when you're watching the car chase sequence and they're racing against the traffic, the lanes are reversed. Because like in North America, right, like your passenger seats on the right side and the driver's on the left side and like the highways are positioned differently than, say, in Australia or Hong Kong or whatever, right? Or like in the UK. But did you notice that they reversed the highways for some I, reason? I did. And and then they went right back to normal. So I didn't really understand what was going At least I thought I saw it. So there was a moment where I thought, why are the highways wrong? So like something feels wrong to me because I drive and I'm like, this doesn't look right. And then I really started paying attention and everything was correct. But for some reason, I got the the inkling that there, they had flipped them. They had reversed them. They they, they clearly, clearly reversed the traffic. Yeah, for a I do not know why, but I, I, I was like, I've been to LA and I don't remember it being like this. Yeah, I don't, you don't no, remember that, it being there, like there this is, when you were driving against traffic? There is no, there is no reversal. Yeah, yeah there, there's enough. no reversal of lanes in, in anywhere in this country that I'm aware of, and definitely not in L.A. That would be a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> just an absolute nightmare. Maybe it was just a metaphor for how morally upside down the universe of this film is. Yes, exactly. And these characters were going against the grain. Uh, everything was flipped. Everything was reversed, right? Good was bad. Bad was good. One more thing about the car chase that I really appreciated. Sorry, just to cut Yeah, it. go for it. And that is that too often now we see tires squealing in every single movie as like, this is the only movie that I, or at least the first movie I've seen in a long, long time that when the cars peel out on screen, they're actually peeling out. We always hear that, that, that screech of the tires, but it never burns out. You need that smoke. Like I need to be able to see that does happen when you peel out. <laughs> so, and here they actually do it. These cars are peeling out. They're doing that. In most movies, you just hear the screech and, and the car's not even doing that at all. It's funny you say that because I actually have that in my notes and give credit to the editor and sound editor because they decided to record all of the sounds in that eight and a half minute long chase sequence in post-production. Every single sound was recorded in post-production, including the actors simply breathing. That's awesome. Well, they did a great job. I can, and, oh, sorry. One last thing I have to mention about this sequence is a, an underrated uh, sort of thing about them is John Pankow in the passenger in the uh, in the back seat, looking like he wants to throw up the whole yeah. time, <laughs> <laughs> and almost like praying just yes. to, that he'll get out of this. <laughs> uh, all right, Rick. So, top that one, Rick. What's your favorite scene? Okay, well, I mean, look, I think that's everyone's favorite scene because it's one of the greatest car chases ever put to motion picture. But I'm going to choose a different scene just for the sake of choosing a different scene. I'm going to say my second favorite scene is when they decide to kill the main actor, the main protagonist, the main character, Richard Chance. They kill (laughs) Richard Chance like towards the end of the film. There's about 10 minutes left. They decide to kill the main character. They blow his fucking brains his, out. Yeah, they blow his head out with a shotgun. <laughs> he gets shot in the head with a shotgun. His he, entire face explodes on screen. Yes. He dies and is dead. He doesn't just die. <laughs> he doesn't just like fall over and have a heart attack. He gets his blown face away. gets blown off. 
What was even funnier after this when Vukovic bends down and he's like, Richard, are you okay? That's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god, dude, we just saw his entire head explode. Richard, where's your face, Richard? <laughs> it was a great effect. I love that scene. It was it was a great, great I mean, effect. It was already depressing that his partner was killed at the start of the film because he was two days away from actual retirement. He was a really nice guy. I'm talking his name was Jimmy Hart, right? And then we get to the end of the film, and I know, like, Richard Chance isn't exactly a likable character. And, like, again, we, we argued about is he really a hero hero or not. But, I mean, the bottom line is the director decided to kill the main actor despite the fact that the entire uh, – despite the fact that, of course, the studio did not want it because they didn't think that people would actually want to see a movie or like a movie in which the main actor actually dies. And the, can I just mention we, – we can get to the specifics of the scene also, but – it's really surreal when William Peterson dies, not just because it comes out of fucking nowhere, um, but also because John Pankow is really one of the few people in the cast who really isn't trying, who who doesn't have an outsized personality. Like he's quite low key, really, compared to the rest of the cast. And he, it helps that also he's like the, sort of the least recognizable actor out of uh, out of the main guys. Uh, so when William Peterson dies, it really does feel like like there's a hole in the movie that John Pankow is like struggling to fill in this really interesting way. Even though there's only like 15 minutes left or whatever. Yeah. But it creates sort of this uh, uneasiness about where this movie's going to go now, especially because Willem Dafoe does escape that scene. <clears throat> so you're not really sure. It's not like, uh, you know, Richard Chance dies executing his arch nemesis as well. Like they die in the standoff. That's not what happens. So, <laughs> That's left for somebody else. No, that's a good scene. I all right. So my my favorite scene, believe it or not, is the opening scene. Really, I love I love the opening scene. I loved it. it. Sucked me in immediately. I was like, okay, I'm gonna like this movie. Um, I love how he shot that movie. I love how he staged it. I love when he exits his hotel room, and he's there's that tracking shot along the hallway as he he's it kind of portrays him as being a really sharp secret service agent it's a total fake out mm-hmm. and i like that he's he's it, it portrays him as being very sensible because he has the negotiation with the guy who's going to blow himself up and i love the way that whole thing ends i don't quite understand how his partner climbed up like that but whatever uh it was it was almost like it was dreamy the way that it ended uh like it never really happened I and mean, they never reference it ever again yes um it's just a super odd thing that stands alone almost like it was from another movie. And I really liked that scene though, because I think there's something there that if I watch this movie again, I'm going to see something in that scene that, that tips me off. And I, I just love the way it was constructed. I love the way it's shot, staged, everything about it, uh, paced. I, I think it's just a really cool scene. It's not my favorite personally. We can maybe talk about that later, but I do want to say that the, choice to insert that reagan speech was quite cool it's almost like he knew in the future that people would be would be like he knew the 80s were like that the aesthetic wasn't gonna last so he deliberately rooted it in the present as if to say like i am making a movie about right now so my movie will be timeless Mm -hmm. you know I'm really shocked you picked the opening scene. I'm I'm really shocked nobody picked the scene in which Rick Masters actually makes the counterfeit money. Because I'm looking at that scene again, once again, and I still think it's one of the best scenes in a film. It's, it's not my favorite, but it might be one of the better scenes. Because 
like it, it tells us a lot about his character, Rick Masters, how he's such a perfectionist, how he is an artist about his art. The fact that, you know, he he does make counterfeit money. And the whole entire plot revolves around him and his his like criminal. I don't want to call it a criminal underground. I, I don't know what you would call it. A, Willem Dafoe is like a small business owner. Yeah, basically. And he's got a lot of clients who are distributors for him. So he sells them the, the cash they distribute to other people. So he's kind of the wholesaler. And then he gives it out to a bunch of retailers who distribute his fake money. And they everybody makes money off of it. But he doesn't want to saturate the market. He's he's concerned about that. Um, at one point, they address, like, why don't you, like, what do you care? Just keep making more money. But he clearly doesn't want to do that. Well, because the guy, it's it's uh, it's a character that Steve James plays. And he says, what do you care? It's just paper. But he he clearly does care because to him, it's an art. Like, when you, yeah. when you watch this scene and you watch him create the money, like he stares at it like it's like sex, like like he's just like yes. in love with his creation. He blows on it. He cleans it. He puts it in the dryer. Like it, it's just like he's it's it's such a great performance, too, by Willem Dafoe to show that kind of joy and to express himself that way. But also watching the scene right now, like I said, it, you know, if I had to guess, you didn't tell me who, who directed the movie. My first guess might have been Michael Mann. I take it back. My first guess, just based on this scene, right? Not the whole entire film. My first guess would actually be Brian De Palma because it reminds me of a blowout. Like, you know, when we actually get to see John Travolta and how he... How he puts sound together, yeah. Yeah. Like, the, the, it's the obsession just, with equipment. Right, but also the art of it. Like, like it's not just about technology, but it's about art. And and you see it here in this sequence, too. And it's it's beautifully lit. I, lo- I like the, like the red gels. And, and, um, and also, like, the way it ends, right? Like... It, well, not not specifically the way the scene ends, but the way it transitions to Jimmy Hart showing up. And that's when he kills Jimmy Hart, which is probably the biggest emotional punch in the film. Like, it's a real gut punch because, like, you do get to like this character, even though we barely know him. Yeah. The other thing, uh, what was I going to say here? Um, you know, one person who I really think has to have seen this movie and thought about those sequences is uh, Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad, because I also, of course, thought of the long-loving montages of them making meth while watching Willem Dafoe make this funny money. Yeah, it's different than kind of David Fincher's uh, obsession with procedure. His is very clinical and, and seems to have no emotion or love behind it whatsoever, versus some of these other guys really seem to care about the process a little bit more. They inject yeah. more more passion into it. Um, all right, we need to move on here. Uh, Rick... If you could change one thing about this film, what would it be? So I'm not fond of the ending, and I understand why Freakin decided to have the cop, John. It's John, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. John Vukovic. Yeah, John Vukovic basically replaces Richard Chance at the end of the film, and he's now using his his, his informant, right? It didn't really align with the character that we that we came to know throughout the film. Like, I just I just I don't like the ending. I don't like the fact that he replaces Richard Chance. But again, thematically, I understand why, like thematically it works, but I just don't like it. I get there was nowhere for that character to go, unfortunately, other than to do that. I bet they struggled with that. And uh, unless it was in the book. And if that was the way that the book ended, then I'm sure they didn't struggle with it at all. But um I, I just don't see where else that character could go and be satisfying. Like so much shit has gone down that the only thing left for him to do is to sort of ascend the throne. I mean, that that's about it. 
I, I thought it'd been way cooler if, if Vukovic was actually killed off too, which I thought they were going to do it towards the end of the film because he does get shot, and Willem Dafoe's Eric Masters actually survives. They, he clearly wanted to say. I think one of the reasons it's not satisfying is because there might be. I think we have a little bit of sympathy with the informant. Um, you know, she's clearly got her problems as well. Um, and she has no problem betraying people, although the person she was betraying was also abusing her. And <laughs> oh, I had loads. I had loads of sympathy for the snitch. Loads. Of yeah. Sympathy. So it's it, you don't necessarily like to see her. You wanted to see her get free of that situation. And now you know that she's back in it. So it's kind of a downer. It, it's a it's a it's a it's almost like a it's almost like a horror film ending. Whereas Defoe's like, girlfriend gets away and gets to live her life happily ever after with like with her lovely new girlfriend. Yeah, her new girlfriend, and she she takes the car that he had clearly loved, you know, and and she I think it's implied she walks away with plenty of cash too. She there were some paintings that supposedly didn't you know might have been burned that were worth a ton of money that Dean Stockwell talks about the great Dean Stockwell. Um, that was a nice little subtle speech too. I love his little implications there. You could have easily laid it on thick in that moment. But he was so tone perfect. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that's maybe Rick why you sort of feel like that's an unsatisfying thing. I mean, I think you're supposed to feel unsatisfied with it. It's not supposed to be a happy ending, that's for sure. That's my guess, though. I don't know. Um, Simon, what about you? What would you change? Uh, two things. I actually would lop off the opening sequence. Sorry, Patrick. No, that was a great scene. Oh my uh, god. I just, I don't know. I don't. For starters, it completely confused me about what the fuck it is Secret Service agents do and made me have to go check on Wikipedia. So I, <laughs> I didn't think, like that I had to do research. I think they're, they're, they're assuming the American audience knew that they were yeah, involved in I was, I, Honestly, if I was to ask the average American, what, is the, what does the Secret Service do? There's no, there, I don't think most people would get both answers correct. There's no way. No, you know what they do though is that they've they've heard it before. That would not be what they would initially say. But then, if you said to them, "Hey, did you know they also tracked down counterfeiters?" Everybody would go, "Oh yeah." They like they they've heard it. They I know they were taught it at some point, and it's somewhere in their brains. They just it's never going to be the first thing that comes to mind because that's not the most dramatic thing, right? The most dramatic thing is jumping in front of a bullet, you know, for the president. So that's what everybody's going to think of first. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say is that. Uh, there's a part of me that sort of wants a longer cut of this movie, which is something that I feel like we never say. Yes. Um, yes. Because I, I was going to say, I wonder how much is chopped out of this thing. That's what this made, made me, this movie made me think. Yeah, because I don't know. The movie is probably better off in its form because, you know, more movie is something you rarely want to, to wish for because then you get more of it in some director's cut and it ends up being, you know, too long and shitty. And yet, I don't know. There's just so many supporting characters that I wanted to spend more time with. I even wanted to spend more time, even just with Willem Dafoe, just finding out what his deal is because you just don't really find out. Like you find out a lot about him, but in terms of his personality, like what he actually thinks about the world, like why he does what he does, you don't find out anything. It's all, it's all a total mystery. And again, maybe it's better that way, but I, I had the same thought as you, Patrick, I was wondering what, what are we only getting a glimpse of that there's more of on the cutting room floor? I feel this had the potential to be like a Martin Scorsese epic crime movie, you know, like a departed type thing that could have gone almost two and a half, three hours if it wanted to, that there was probably enough story for that and enough characters. But I'm not going to say that I'm not happy they didn't trim it, but I definitely got the sense that they cut stuff out. There were some edits that made me think, I bet there was more to some of this stuff. Um, they, They have to jump quickly. They do a pretty good job of it. 
but I just got that feeling. And so I, I was wondering what more is there to this story? I'm, um, I'm just quickly looking over the trivia page on internet movie database. We've already mentioned a lot of stuff that's already listed on this page, but, um, I did not know that they actually hired a famous painter to paint the paintings. Uh, so meaning that the painting that they actually burned was worth a lot of money. And according to internet movie database, William Friedkin only kept 20% of the elements from the book in the actual screenplay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I was reading about how yeah, supposedly he, oh, I mean, Friedkin claims that he basically wrote the screenplay himself um, after lifting. Yeah. He, he basically picked and choose the elements that he wanted, but the car chase and the opening and a million and quite a few other notable parts were supposedly all Friedkin's that to be honest, Friedkin is a prickly dude uh, who <laughs> is kind. I mean, arguably kind of a bastard. So I never know what to believe when he talks, but boy, can he direct a movie? Yeah. And that's all that, that's all that matters. I mean, it's, you so often hear two completely different versions of what happened on a set depending on who is involved. And see, it's just hard to believe any of these stories, but you know, they're Hollywood lore, which is fun, but you can't, you got to take them with a grain of salt. Uh, for me, there's the one thing that I would change. And I would change this in lots of movies, but this movie suffered from it like a little more than I would have liked. Is this uh, I, I like highly trained individuals to come off as highly trained. And there are times when Richard chance is just a moron. Oh, he's frequently a fucking idiot. And and that just doesn't jive with with what like you're supposed to like what the training is required for a secret service agent, right? Cuz there is a little bit of elitist to them. That'd be like saying that a Navy SEAL, they're not Navy SEALs, I'm not trying to compare it to that. But they are specialists and uh, there's a little more training that goes into that. When they're making an arrest and they're not checking, like they're not immediately getting everybody, like keeping an eye on everybody. The dude that pulls the shotgun on him in the end, like that was ridiculous. I love that scene, but I just wish stuff like that could be dealt with. Like there, there could have been a better way for that to go down than the guy just sort of like pulls a shotgun out of nowhere because nobody's watching him. There's only two guys in there and you got two Secret Service agents and they can't secure a room. So little things like that can bug me. And it happens a couple times in this movie where the cops don't really, or they're not cops again, they're not cops, but they're better. They're supposed to be even better than that. Um, where they supposed can't, to be, yeah. Yeah, they can't secure a room or they don't, like, oh, falling asleep on the stakeout. This would be, it would be worked out so well. And the problem with the editing of the film, though, is that she they notice her walk in and those people, like, they're only in the, in the apartment for, in the house for a little while. And already everybody fell asleep. So they're wide awake, and they're, and he's telling this guy, like, oh, you should go base jumping with me, man. And they just watched her walk in, right? And those people are talking for just a little bit inside the house, then all of a sudden Willem Dafoe shows up, and but everybody's asleep. Little things like that, like, I, I, it was convenient to have them be asleep, but that that's not... See, Michael Mann would not have done that, because his... No, he wouldn't his have, His agents because... would have been way more organized. I, I mean... Is there a single thing that Richard Chance does right in like the entire movie? Well, he didn't fall asleep. It was actually Vukovic who's the problem. Chance was supposed to be sleeping on the couch. That was his off time, right? And right. then Vukovic is supposed to be watching. And right, but still, awake. like in and general, they should be rotating, right? No, I know it's just those little things, though. Like when you watch Dragged Across Concrete and you watch Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn do a stakeout. That's how you do a stakeout. Like those guys know what they're doing. And it comes across as believable, and therefore their characters come across believable. Even when they make mistakes, 
They're mistakes that they make because they're trying their best, not because they're being idiots. <laughs> well, honestly, that was sort of why it surprised me that the origin of this film was a book written by a former Secret Service agent. Yeah. Because this movie has a very low opinion of Secret Service agents. Yeah, it does not like the from the from the top down, like from their commanding officer who just wants to follow the book and doesn't actually care about catching anybody to the agents who are just like gung-ho cowboys out there, like doing whatever they want and breaking every laws left and right. And getting murdered. <laughs> yeah. Just left and right. It, it's funny you say that because you sent us that bit of information the other day on Slack, and I was like shocked it was actually based on a book by someone who actually worked as a secret agent because I was like, why didn't they get anyone on set to teach these guys how to actually act like secret agents? Because the one thing that I noticed, Patrick, was William Peterson does not know how to hold or shoot a gun. <laughs> and yeah. i've never held or shot a gun but i've watched enough people do it and i've seen enough movies to know that he does not know how to hold or shoot a gun the, yeah it doesn't seem like they had any uh technical coordinators uh you know making sure that stuff was was legitimate but um i mean they I, they did shoot in a real prison yeah so like there's a lot of there's a lot of things that they do where it actually feels authentic and real but yes. in terms of like their actual performance it, it yeah it's 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 sketchy all right <laughs> so mvp this should be an interesting one um simon we're gonna go with you first who's your mvp of this movie before i say my mvp i just want to say the whole like this is another thing that's special about this movie that is not true of so many other movies like this the entire cast is good like yes it, the entire cast isn't necessarily the most memorable act the performances ever but like even the the bit parts the thankless roles the superior officers and the uh and the girlfriends and the mistresses and the i don't know man the guy who plays Osama bin laden wasn't very good that guy was great (laughs) he he made that movie that that opening seem like kind of a dream because it it just didn't seem real he didn't seem real he seemed like a, a cartoon like this guy's wish of what would happen to him it's almost like he was playing poker and he fell asleep and he thought like oh man wouldn't it be cool if there was a guy that was about to blow himself up and i would single-handedly help take him down uh patrick that sounds like a wonderful opening to a different movie i know but that to me i feel like if i watch this again i'm gonna discover some secret in that opening he included that opening for some reason i I gotta give it up for william peterson and the main reason that i have to give it up for william peterson is you can watch this movie with the sound off and with with no subtitles on and just enjoy watching the way William Peterson walks into rooms and like leans on stuff. <laughs> just like the way he like he'll prop up his knee on a chair or just yeah. he's just such a such a douchebag from the top down. And it's even in his body language and it's just a fearless douchebag performance. And I'm, I'm not and that's even without the naked erect penis of william peterson which is also in this movie. i believe he's credited as william l peterson in this isn't he the l is for <laughs> yeah, that's not what i was gonna say but sure yeah the, he is he is an absolute he is a loser in this movie he's an absolute loser and i i, I love how i love the combination i know that patrick you take issue with how uh, inept they are but i kind of love how gung-ho trigger happy just like never, never thinking more than one step ahead. Whereas Willem Dafoe is playing like four dimensional chess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so it's not a typical lead cop figure for a movie like this. Uh, usually, even when you have a dirty cop or a cop who's kind of a uh, kind of an asshole, he is cunning. 
but he's here, a schemer. Yeah. Willem Dafoe gets all the cunning. He's almost supernaturally smart. No, um, and, and William Peterson is just, he's a, just a brute force. He's just a blunt object, mm-hmm. just like flying in the opposite direction of traffic. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> I love wonderful. about the character. I just wanted like basic stuff to be, but yeah, yeah he does a fair. great job. He's a, he's a, he's a, he does a great job. You can see everything on the look of his face too, as to yeah. what he thinks about any that, situation he's walking into. Between this and Manhunter, William Peterson did the, uh, and I, I guess in both cases they're not cops, but to my mind he did the quintessential like anguished, fucked up cops of the '80s with this and uh, and Will Graham in in, uh, in Manhunter. Different kinds of fucked up, but still. Yes. Uh, all right, Rick. Who is your MVP? Look, Simon, the MVP is Willem Dafoe because his performance is so unusual and he steals the show. Nobody knew who this guy was at the time. Every Everyone raved about his performance from Roger Ebert to whatever critic you want to name. He, to me, steals the show because his character is so unique. And I think we talked about King of New York not long ago. And I would put his performance in the same category as... Uh, what's his face Christopher Walken in that movie not because the characters are similar but just the fact that you have these very unusual characters larger than life really charismatic for like the wrong reasons you're just attracted to watching them on screen they're magnetic like the their performances are unforgettable and I think that he is just hands down the secret weapon I mean yeah there's a car chase sequence which we talked about but you can't give a scene an MVP I have to actually give it to a person so I'm going to give it to Willem Dafoe. And by the way, Patrick, you already alluded to this, but it's it's a hallmark of how great Willem Dafoe is in this movie that when he picks up that two by four and apparently brains uh, John Vukovic, you think maybe to death, you're mm. kind of like, and then he picks up the hay to just burn him like possibly alive. You're just kind of like, hell yeah, buddy, you go get it. <laughs> I know. He's like, I, I like the Christopher Walken um king in new york reference um just because they both seem to be living in another dimension yeah it's, it's like they know things that other people don't know and that it's like they're vampires like simon said like he he appears to be like a vampire in this film and and christopher walken he he doesn't feel human it's like you said it's like he's living in his own fever dream yeah they're like they'll like stare off into space and you don't know what they're looking at it's like they're seeing things that that normal humans can't see um, they're aware of things in the world that normal humans aren't aware of. <laughs> I, I I feel there's some overlap, but Willem Dafoe does feel like a person to me in this movie. Like he feels like a calculating person who is like perhaps unrealistically like preternaturally cunning, but yeah. he doesn't feel, but like Willem, uh, walking in kingdom of New York genuinely feels like something more than human to me. Like an alien. Uh, I'm going to go with Friedkin because I like, watching his movies i like the visuals of his movies i i don't love every one of his movies i haven't seen every one of his movies uh, but this, this is a movie that reminds me that i need to watch those movies that i haven't seen because i might find one that i actually love um because i i there's just there's so much about the staging in his movies the way his camera moves i love old-fashioned push-ins i love tracking shots uh, that actually on tracks that you can tell um yeah i just love his style um, and I had Simon, I had talked to you, or I, I think I brought up Killer Joe. I just saw that earlier this year, too. Uh, not a perfect movie, but 
man, I just, there's so much of that movie that I also love. And I wanted to, I, I thought about having that on the podcast at some point in time. But you guys said, I think, guess you guys did one on that already. I'm going to have to go um, check the actual review. We did review it, but it might be one of those like 50 minute reviews. So I, I think I did check, but, and I realized like, oh, I can't bring it up because you guys already did a full length one. But regardless, it's just, there's something about Friedkin's visual style that I really like. And that movie included, like I said, Killer Joe's not a perfect movie. But uh, but I enjoy watching it, and I enjoyed watching To Live and Die in L.A. just because of the way he does things. And and it's like I'm looking at his filmography right now, and I'm I'm a big huge fan of this, this director, Killer Joe, Bug, French Connection, The Exorcist, Sorcerer, Cruising, To Live and Die in L.A. Like amazing movies, right? He also did stuff like Blue Chips and Jade. Yeah, and like I say, not everything works, right? Like, yeah. By the and, way, and um, rules of engagement, which was a weird one for him, that Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, he uh, yeah. he had an era there where he was. It seems like he was kind of just purely doing stuff for hire, which um, is what De Palma has done too occasionally. So it's like, yeah, the um, I have to say, very little scene. The movie that he did after To Live and Die in L.A. Rampage, starring Michael Bean, uh, which he wrote, directed, and produced, absolute piece of shit horrible movie it's really bad it's hard to find and it sucks like i had to go looking for it and i was very disappointed but still i mean the guy's worth taking a shot on that that oh yeah for sure that says something like william freakin's a draw to me when his name is when he's in the director's chair so and there's there's probably there's not many directors who can work a budget or or work a constraint the way Friedkin can and and make it look this good yeah, like I mean, the fact that this is a six million dollar movie is insane. Yeah. Um, Even for nineteen eighty five, I mean, yeah, the, it, movie budgets had already gone up at that point, especially for action movies, well yeah. beyond six million dollars. And and you can knock him to a way smaller budget than that with something like Bug, and he still makes an amazing looking and, and a movie that actually moves, even if it's based on a stage play, which is also very difficult to do. Okay, we can't finish the podcast without mentioning. The three dudes who walk in the background playing hip hop music or beatboxing, or <laughs> one guy's holding a ghetto on blaster. The street, you mean the ones yeah. on the street? <laughs> Did you notice that, Simon? In what scene? When they f- finish the car chase and they get out of the car, they go park in that one oh, area yes, where he talked yes. about his window. Yeah. This is how the car chase sequence ends. They're standing right. in the middle of the road. They're confused. They don't know what to do. They don't know what's going on. And these three dudes just. <laughs> Walk in the background. One looks like Bob Marley. The other guy looks like, you know, he's, he looks like some, like he's part of some 80s hip hop act holding a ghetto blaster and they're like dancing and like singing and playing instruments. Yeah. yeah. So I think yeah. that was just supposed to be This is LA. Yeah. <laughs> just another day in LA, folks. That's the to live part. Yes, exactly. Uh, all right. So uh, the Howard Hawks says, guys. I, we never really talked about if we... I mean, there were a couple scenes that you guys didn't like, so I think maybe for you, this may not pass the three great scenes and no bad ones. I, I don't know if I'd call the opening bad. I just... I don't know. I just don't think it adds a lot to this movie. Um, okay. But there's a, a load of great scenes in this movie. Um, I mean, the... I, to be honest, the car chase alone practically counts as three great scenes. Three, three scenes, almost. Yeah, it's got three stages for sure. Um. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I can't think that I, I. There's not a scene that I hate. What about you, Rick? I think there's easily three great scenes in this. But, okay, the uh, car chase sequence. If you count it as one scene, that's one scene. You got the scene in which Willem Dafoe actually creates a counterfeit money. That's a great, incredible sequence. You have the sequence in which 
Chance is actually shot in the head. That's a great scene. I don't think it has bad scenes. I'm with Simon. I'm not hot on the opening because it confused me. I'm like, I didn't understand why he was chasing a terrorist because I also did not understand that the secret agent were... I, I didn't even understand that they were secret agents until I read up on the movie afterwards. Yeah. Oh, I think not, that's not every thing. not everyone is American. I th- yeah, I think American did. audiences would have instinctively known immediately yeah. as soon as Reagan started talking and they started talking about the big man. We was just instinctively knew they were <laughs> fucking typical imperialist chauvinism is all I have to say. <laughs> um, but uh, and in addition, I like in addition to like the gr- obvious great scenes. There's just really good ones, like mm-hmm. kind of peppering the, the movie that we even t- haven't even talked about. Like there's a couple of tight space uh, sort of like chill home invasion sequences like when villain defoe shows up to uh with with the with the guy who uh max. he gets his who he gets his girlfriend to kind of seduce um and uh max played by young gary cole um in an, another early appearance or uh later on when chance uh is in john Turturro's apartment um yes. and they That's they have that wonderful wonderful use of dividing up the frame with that with that sort of divider wall and lovely qu- quiet quiet patient ten- uh, quiet patient tension uh with no music good stuff just solid solid stuff yeah i can't see anything bad i mean I just, uh, it, and it's got plenty to like about it um so who is the audience for this thing going forward then <laughs> since nobody can watch it <laughs> well i will say I think almost everyone should see this movie. However, I will say if you like your crime movies to have uh, morals uh, or, you know, any sort of uplift or uh, to depict to depict a moral universe in which people, the the right people get their comeuppance or whatever. um, This is not that it's a dark, nasty, um, mean spirited, brutal piece of work um that it i mean it on top of that it's also fun it's yeah, fun it, but it's it very grim too you, you but, use the word brutal and you make it sound like it's really dark and depressing it is i mean it is dark but it's also fun uh, it, it's dark when you start to analyze what happened but the movie doesn't come across i don't think is overly dark. like people shouldn't be going into this thinking that it's gonna be a slog like there's there's a, there's a sense of humor in this movie too like there's some corny jokes like when the traffic jam woman comes up and she's just like, oh, yeah, there might be a couple of cars. But don't worry, you'll get through there. No problem. There is a sense of humor, but there's also you you eventually do figure out, oh, wait, like these people that I'm following around are just horrible. They're not <laughs> nice people. Yeah, yeah but no I still, good I still think Bruto is not a good way to okay, sell maybe the movie. Not. I mean, there's an entire like 10 minute. There's an entire like five to 10 minute montage in which they just show these guys naked or half naked, just talking and going over like the plot of the movie. They're oh, in yeah, a shower. The they're oh, in yes. a locker room. They're in a <laughs> sauna. <laughs> sauna yeah. Let's like, like I, I, I joked around on Slack about how William Friedkin was clearly horny when making this movie, because not only do we get these silly shots of them just working out half naked, but there's so much sex in this movie, so much nudity. Um, so yeah, it's not like, dark and twisted it's it it, it has a depressing sad ending on the surface it's you know i guess it it, wouldn't call it depressing but i guess you could see it that way what are you talking about like the protagonist dies jimmy hart dies the girl's left to be a sex slave to the jabroni who now wants to be chance (laughs) (laughs) come on (laughs) 
<laughs> well, the other, girl gets, the other girl gets away. But uh, no, I know. But I just saw that as a natural order of events. I didn't see that as any sort of like, oh, man, my like I had so much invested in these people because it's not like I cared about Vukovic that much. And, uh, I th- you know, you know what actually really helps the mood of this movie? And I think another thing that's that's kind of great about it is that I think basically the, the entire movie takes place in the daytime almost. Like, yeah. like, like, especially the, I mean, the entire car chase sequences, many, the airport sequence, like almost all the key sequences, unlike many other like 80s cop type deals, take place with the blazing sun out. Again, nice movie to look at. I think this yes. is just a, it's a great movie to look at. Shout out to Robbie Mueller. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, we should probably wrap things up. Um, that's it for To Live and Die in L.A. Good luck finding this one, guys. Uh, it can be, like you said, it could be found on DVD, I guess. It can be found on DVD, uh, but I don't have anywhere that people can find me online, but I do need to say public service announcement. My next movie so that I can't chicken out will be remember my name uh, by Alan Rudolph in like three weeks or four weeks or whenever it happens. I'm telling you this now audience so that you have a chance to go over to archive.org and find it and watch it. Cause that's the only place you can watch it right now. As far as I know. Uh, oh that's God. your homework for three weeks from now. <laughs> and it's available new... in 1080p. It's in lovely quality. Is your new podcast coming out pretty soon too? Uh, I don't want to say any more about that until it's actually out. Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to jinx it. But you'll hear about okay. it later. Gotcha. Um, all right. I'm not doing anything. But uh, I think I have to pick next week. No, wait. Rick's going to be picking next week. I think for us. Um, Rick, where can everybody find you? And have you decided on a movie? You'll just have to tune in to find out what movie that is. Uh, you can find the podcast over at sortedcinema.com. The Twitter account is Sorted Cinema, and you can listen to the podcast everywhere from YouTube to iTunes to Spotify to Podbean to, again, it's everywhere. Check sortedcinema.com. All right. We will be back next week. Until then. I get all the taste, brother. <laughs> yo, 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 yo. Hello, Jeff. What are you doing in my crib? You sent two assholes to do Cody, and they blew it. I paid you half. I want it back. Yeah, well, uh, I've been trying to get that money back myself. I had to front the whole purchase to get my people to do their thing. So I ain't got it no more. Well, then, uh, you better try and shit 40 grand. Because I ain't leaving without it. <laughs> I owe you, Cody. Next time, there'll be no fuck-up. What next time? He's in protective custody. <laughs> yeah. Protective custody don't mean shit to me. The man's dead. And a pig's ass. Want my paper, Jeff. I can't afford to have it circulating right now. And I told you I don't have it. Get it. Now look, my man. I told you I don't have what you're looking for. So why don't you make it easy on yourself? Just shag your ass out of my crib. Now you be a printer. Go get some ink. And start printing some more of that shit.
Okay, why don't we shoot? He's offset. I've got the slate. 